Well, last week we concluded our study of the book of Acts. We made our way through all 28 chapters, taking a little break in between for Lent and for uh, several weeks on the resurrection, then a few weeks on the Trinity, and then coming back we concluded our look at Acts last week. And I mentioned last week that we'd be beginning, be beginning a new study this week, uh, namely on looking at Christ in the Old Testament. I want to begin to lay the groundwork to prepare us for Advent. We're not, I don't want to get you all thinking about Christmas already, but, uh, but when we approach Advent, we'll be considering some birth narratives in the Old Testament. I just thought this would be a fine study and to pick up for a couple reasons. One, uh, because we said we would do this in Sunday school about two and a half years ago, and we started, we did start, and then we started spending time in Sunday school discussing the sermons. Uh, and the and the worship service, as you know, we we try to tie the liturgy of the day uh, together, from the prayers to what's sung to what's read to you know all these sorts of things. And so, uh, as we talk about the theme of the service and certainly the content of the text preached uh, and the sermon itself, we just found that to be a really rich and great time of staying afterwards and just discussing it and allowing ourselves to chew on the the heart of the text and that was before us and the theme as it was brought to us from so many different angles through the, the liturgy of the day uh, that we've stuck with that and have not returned back to a traditional Sunday school except from time to time for particular purposes. Um, but I've really, I've really enjoyed that and found it to be profitable uh, to, to sit and linger in a text to come back to it and to hear your insights and the things that the Spirit has done and moved in you and, and little thoughts you have or questions you have and the chance to reflect a little deeper on things that uh, a sermon does not give you opportunity to do. So we, we made that deviation of not returned on, on Sunday school. So this will give us a chance to come back to this theme. But also, also because one of the things that we've thought about, particularly on the back end of Acts, was Paul's claim that while he was arrested... We know he's arrested on these false charges, right? They, they arrest him because he supposedly brought Gentiles into the temple, and so they arrest him. But we know that wasn't true. And Paul, you'll remember, very quickly discerns what's going on here and completely ignores the, those false accusations and says, the reason that I'm being charged is for the teaching on the resurrection. And as we heard last week, as he finally meets the Christians in Rome and is able to be there and spends two years teaching, the first thing he says to them is, I know if you've heard anything about me, it's all lies. When, when Paul meets the Christians in Rome, what he says is the reason I'm on these charges really is because I'm preaching the hope of Israel. I'm arrested because I preach the hope of Israel. That is, Paul was able to look at the Old Testament and see now, remember he did not see it. He, in fact, he was killing people who said that Christ was the hope of Israel. He was killing people who said that Christ is the messianic fulfillment of all the Old Testament. People taught that. He literally had them executed. But now by God's grace, he had been given eyes to see and ears to hear and heart to understand. And as he now searches the scripture, he sees it's all about Jesus. And so he proclaims this truth and he says, it's for this reason that I've been arrested. So in union with that then, this gives us opportunity and a connection to go back into the Old Testament and hear what the heck Paul's talking about. What do you mean there's Jesus in the Old Testament? What is this connection that is there between the teachings, the writings of the Old Testament, and 
what Paul is preaching in the book of Acts. Now, our New Testament reading today, as Mark just recently here concluded uh, reading it, was from John chapter 5. And in John 5 now, Jesus is, of course, his identity and uh, uh, his self-identity is being challenged. And Jesus, you hear on the back end of that text, is defending himself. I don't testify to myself, he says. I have these other witnesses that testify to me, right? John the Baptist testified of me. My works testify of me. The Father testifies of me. And in fact, Moses testifies of me. And you all think you search the scriptures. You think you have such wisdom and knowledge because you search the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures. For if you knew the scriptures, you would believe me. You know who condemns you, he says? I don't condemn you. Moses condemns you because you don't believe Moses. If you'd believe Moses, you'd believe me because Moses wrote of me. Now think about that line. Moses wrote about me. Now when you read Moses, when you read the Pentateuch, are you reading about Jesus? Jesus is making a very bold statement there. Moses wrote about me. You search the scriptures claiming to have knowledge, thinking you're going to get knowledge, but if it doesn't lead you to me, if you don't read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and say, oh, Jesus, of course. If you don't read this and have a deeper understanding of him, then have you in fact understood it? And it's not just Moses, because we know that later in Luke 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and the other friend, these disciples were just getting to meet for the first time, as they're walking on the pathway there, and they're all downcast because they thought Jesus was the one, and of course the women did say that the tomb was empty, and we do remember something about Jesus saying on the third day, you know, but I guess he wasn't the one, and I don't know, it's, we're all very discouraged about this. And Jesus says, you slow of heart, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures have said. And then beginning with Moses and going through the prophets, he showed them how all these things had to happen to the Christ. As we've talked about before, the greatest Bible study ever in the history of the world. If you could ever be on an eight-mile walk, that's the one you want to be on because Jesus had eight miles with these guys just breaking open the scriptures. Can you imagine what that must have been like? But what Jesus is doing is not saying, okay, don't worry about the stories of the Bible. That was Old Testament. Now I'm going to teach you some new things. No, Jesus goes into the Old Testament and says, don't you see? Don't you see? Don't you see how these things had to happen to the Christ? Moses, the law, the prophets, the poetry, it all wrote about him. It was all about him. So this is a challenge for us because how do we understand the Old Testament? Are we reading the Old Testament properly? Are we reading it correctly? If it doesn't lead us to Jesus then somehow we have not run, we've not allowed it to run its course. We have not heard it all the way to the end. We are doing something wrong with the scriptures if for us now in Christ, we don't see Christ throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Now we know most times when the Old Testament is preached, when it's used in Sunday school, Sunday school is the worst, especially children's Sunday school. VBS lessons, generally horrible, Okay. Now, I've been part of these, okay? I've, I'm, I'm complicit in this in my life from time to time. But, but usually with children, it's very bad because the Old Testament stories become predominantly 
moral lessons for kids. The theme of every story in the Old Testament is essentially be like this person or don't be like that person. Story after story after story holding this moral example up because we don't know what to do with these stories. Because we don't see Christ in them, we don't know what else to do with them except say either one is just interesting history that kind of tells us the background of the Jewish people. It's a lot of pages to tell us the background of the Jewish people, all right, which is interesting, and it certainly does that. But that's not the point. Nor is the point of the Old Testament simply moral lessons. That we should all be like David, and when we face the giants in our life, we should also trust him and grab whatever he has around us, a couple smooth stones perhaps, and slay the giants that are before us. All right? That is, now, that is, that is the majority of children's lessons when the story of David and Goliath. Now, if you've ever taught that lesson, that's okay. I'm not going to ask for raising of hands. Maybe we've taught our children that lesson. And it's not that there's no truth to that. It's not that there's no truth to that. There is truth to that. We should also be courageous when we face really scary giants. Okay? There's, there is a truth to that. It's just not the primary truth of that. It's not the ultimate lesson of that text. The ultimate lesson of that text, as well as every other Old Testament text, is you need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need a David, a champion, who will slay the unbeatable giant for you. That is, that's the story that we need. And this is true as we go through every Old Testament text. It must drive us to Christ. It must reveal to us how desperately we need him. Or it must, it's revealing to us the fact and the way in which he is going to come and deliver us. These are story after story after story we could go through. And it, it would be a good habit for you, a good exercise for you, maybe even this afternoon, to just pick a story in the Old Testament. One of the big boys, one of the, one of the stories that you really know well because you, you've heard it your whole Christian life. And just think for yourself for a moment. How does this story reveal Christ to me? How does this story prepare God's people for the coming of Christ? Pick any one and think about it. There is, there is so much there for you to chew on, and in, oftentimes we lack it. These people knew the scriptures. They had the scriptures memorized. And Jesus says, you don't know them. Because if you knew them, you'd know me. If you knew them, you'd recognize me fact you don't realize uh, reveals the fact that you don't really know the scriptures which were the old testament at that time so we'll start at the very beginning we'll think about genesis chapter one now you might say oh, okay okay when we get to genesis chapter three perhaps when we get to some of the big stories you know the mount rushmores of the of the old testament saints you know the abrahams or, or the noahs or the moseses uh, the davids okay there we can see christ but in many ways, it's right there for us in the very beginning of the story. So I just want to think briefly. I wanted to introduce the concept of where we're going. We're going to do this throughout. We'll, we're going to jump around. We're going to skip over some texts and then come back to them. We're going to save some maybe for, for uh, um, uh, Advent, so some narratives, and we'll come back to them. We'll skip over some, and when we get into Lent, we'll come back to them. And we're, we're going to stick on this theme here in the Old Testament, not going through a book, just going through the the Old Testament, looking at various stories, and hopefully developing in ourselves the ability to read the Old Testament and see Christ. That's what we want to do. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? I am the fulfillment of all these things. 
So what do we see right in the very beginning? We start in the beginning because in the very first verses of Scripture, in some sense, the whole rest of the Scriptures are laid out for us. We might say, and we would be justified in saying, that the whole rest of the Bible is a playing out of verses 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 1. In, in Genesis chapter 1, and maybe even Genesis 1 verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That God is a God who casts out darkness with his light. That right there, you've got the whole Bible right there. The whole story, you could take the rest of the scriptures and interpret it through that lens. It's all there for us right in the very beginning. And as we've already heard, for us, right? For us, as Mark said, in mentioning that Christ is the light of the world, it's all we need. We see Christ. We see Christ right here in the very beginning, the first verses, much less the first pages of the scripture. Well, I want us to think about three things in Genesis chapter one, and there's so much more to say because we're not gonna spend any time on the fact that God makes man in his image as a little reflection of who he is and his responsibility and his nature and so forth. We're not even gonna deal with that. We're just really dealing with the first couple verses of Genesis one, but I wanted the whole thing read for us to have the context and to hear what is going on. Three points I want to make here about Christ from Genesis chapter 1 and the work of God in creation. Now, the, I'll tell you the three points. The, fir the first point is, God is uh, Jesus Christ is the one who brings light as the light. He's the one who brings form to the chaos, and he's the one who brings fullness to the emptiness. All right, so we'll, we'll see that here. But I think it's worth noting that right at the very beginning we have this beautiful Trinitarian work of creation. So it's not just that we learn about Christ in this text, but the fact that Christ is present in the text, okay? That we have here a beautiful Trinitarian work of creation. In the beginning, God, God the triune God, but also God the Father here. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Now, I believe we have the image of God the Father in the work of creation, the one who orders creation, who commands it. God said, let there be light. We have the Spirit hovering over the face of the deep, but also we have Christ present. And yet he's hidden unless you have eyes to see or ears to hear. Christ is present in the fact that, verse 3, and God said, let there be light. So it's not just that this is a picture of Christ, it's actually the presence of Christ. And we know this from John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In the beginning is the Word. The Word's God, and the Word is with God at the same time. And it's God who says to God, let us make. It's God the Father who speaks, and the Son as the Word of God who goes forth and accomplishes the will of his Father. This is true not just in creation, but we know later in his ministry, in his incarnation, when he takes our human nature upon himself. What will he say? My food and my drink is to do the will of my Father who sent me. 
This is true in salvation, but from the very first verses of the Bible, we see it's true in creation also. All things were made through him. The Father creates via his Son, via the Word. It's interesting that he speaks things into creation with the Word. Let there be, and there is. So at the very beginning, we have, again, not just a representation of Christ in images like light and so forth, but Christ actually present in the creation of all things. So we ought to notice him there. Now, again, we might not know that. Certainly, the Old Testament community would not have understood that. There were little hints of the Trinitarian nature of God, but, but there were hints. It's not until we have John in John 1.1 1, 1 saying, in the beginning, the word for beginning is genesis, genesis. In the genesis was the word. And now John is saying, let me tell you about him. Let me introduce you to him. Right? He was with God and was God himself. And all things were made through him. And by him, all things were made. Nothing was made apart from him that was made. So what do we learn about this creative God, the God that reveals himself in and through his son, the second person of the Trinity, even Jesus Christ? Well, again, first we learn he is the one, and I'm kind of working a little bit. Well, no, I guess I'm in order. Uh, the first thing that's true about him is that he is the one who casts out darkness. Now, we might ask the question, why does God, this is very interesting, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, pretty simple. And the earth was without form and void, so it was formless and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God says, let there be light. Now God is sovereign. He's a God who does not need to create, create things in order. If I'm going to build something, if I'm going to build a house, I have to do it in order. I can't start with the roof. Right? I have to start with the foundation. Then, then i got to put up the walls. Then I can put up the trusses, right? I, I, there's an order. God, God can say, let there be, it is. There's not a process for God. God could have said, let there be 2020. Let there be 2019. What year are we in here? God could say, let there be, and everything is just the way it is now. God, God doesn't have to start with, okay, let me see here. Roll, you know, rolls up his sleeves, okay. Let there be heavens and earth. Okay, now, good. I've got, a, I've got an empty ball of water. And darkness. All right, next. What am I going to do next? Okay, let's see. We're going to need some light. You know, this is not what God is doing. God is the sovereign, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful God. Now, why in the world does he allow there to be darkness? It's like right in the first verses, we're faced with a very, very, very deep difficult theological philosophical question a question that many of you have probably asked a question that abby my little daughter asked me the other day dad why would god allow there to be satan now i was making my coffee at 7 30 a.m and i'm like abs you know, I don't want to tell my daughter, not now. You're stumping the pastor at 7.30 in the morning. I'm just trying to get out of the house here. But that's a tough one for 7.30 in the morning. God, why? Dad, why did God let there be Satan? Well, he's sovereign. I mean, right at the outset, it says the earth is 
dark. Every, there's darkness over the face of the deep. It's just a, it's a chaotic ball of water. God creates the heavens and the earth, and the earth is just a chaotic... I say chaotic because it's water. It's like the sea. It, it, it's, it's, it's moving. It's constantly in motion. It's waves. It's, there's no boundaries to it. It's, it's disordered. It's, it's not evil. It's just not ordered. It's not formed. It's formless. It's empty. It has no life in it. And it's covered in darkness. Now, why would God do that? And then say, okay, now, let there be light. And then there's light. It's a good question. I'm not God, so I don't, I don't, he, he doesn't exactly give me the reasons here. But I think we can speculate to some degree because we know that, again, he is God. He did not have to do it that way. And it's not like he's doing it and thinking, oh, maybe I should have just done it another way. He creates it one way and then begins to undo what he's done. I believe so that we might look, so we might see, so that we might contemplate. He's going to do this in the next chapter too. He's going to make Adam all by himself. He's going to, he gave Adam the task. Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And he creates Adam alone. And so he brings Adam out and Adam starts looking at the animals like, okay, what do I do here? And all the animals are brought before him and he says, look, there's no suitable helpmate here, God. You know, this is... And God says, yes, Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, again, is this just because God had to... Look, Adam, I'm, hey, I'm sorry, but we're in a step of a process here. Like, you got to wait. Let me, give me time. I'm going to get you help me. No, God could have created Adam and Eve, but he creates Adam. And he says, Adam, take a look. See what you can find here. Adam looks at all the animals. He names them all. He says, there's no suitable help me. And says, okay, good. I'm putting you to sleep. I'm going to put you to sleep. And from you, I'm going to bring forth a help me. Now, why would God do that? Is it not to draw out the point? This is not good. This is not good. You need a companion. You need a helpmate. You are unsuitable, Adam, in and of yourself to be my image bearer. I want you to see that. Do you see that? Good. I'm going to put you to sleep. When you wake up, you're going to have your helpmate. Why the darkness? Why the formlessness? Why the emptiness? Why not just create full of life, brimming with life? Is it not so that we can see, we have played out before us in this three-act play, if you will, that God is a God who casts out darkness. I am not satisfied with darkness. Why Satan? I don't know. But why Pharaoh? We get a little hint. We get a little hint in Romans chapter 9. Right? Because if, if we take darkness and then Satan is a little is sort of incarnation of the darkness, but Pharaoh in the book of Exodus is a little type of the satanic darkness. Paul gives us in Romans chapter 9 some little answer to this when he says, Pharaoh, the scriptures say, Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that my power might be manifested in you. That God allows, in fact, ordains the darkness so that he might overcome it and so that we might see. We might see his glory and we might see his greatness and we might see how wonderful light is and how awful darkness is. 
And so God in his sovereign providence ordains the darkness and then casts it out. He ordains the darkness, this, this dark, watery ball, and then begins by saying, let there be light. And the rest of the scriptures is the coming of the light. Until Jesus comes and the light of the world comes so that he might fully cast out all darkness. And when we get to Revelation, which we've preached through, you might remember in that head-scratching image, if we don't think about it as vision literature, if we think about it as vision literature and understand the genre of what's going on, when we get to the end of Revelation and we get a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, and it says, and there will be no night there. We don't go, well, how are we going to sleep? We know what the scriptures are saying. There is coming a time. The scriptures begin where darkness is allowed to have its moment. But the scriptures end at a place where darkness is once and for all and fully cast out. And there is no night there. And there's no sun either. Because the Lord himself will be their light. The sun has always been a metaphor. The sun has always been an object lesson of Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. And the story of the Bible and the story of Jesus is the coming of the one who will cast out all darkness. In Genesis 1, it's the darkness of night. In Genesis 3, it's a deeper darkness. We'll get to that next week. But now the darkness of sin. It's like in Genesis 1, we're allowed to reckon with dark, which is intimidating, but it's not so bad. But of course, it's a highlight or a preview of a much, much deeper darkness that's about to come two chapters later. And when we're overwhelmed by the darkness of sin and rebellion and the curse, oh, how we will long for the light. And when we do, we ought to remember that our God, the Creator God, the Word, is a God who casts out darkness with the light. And He gives, by the way, it's interesting, in structuring the form, so this, let this transition us into the next point, that he is a God of light who casts out darkness, but he's also a God of form who overcomes chaos and disorder. That in establishing the order, right, in day one, he separates, and hard to understand what he means, but he separates light from darkness. And then on day two, so days one, two, and three, God is establishing form, right? The earth is formless, and empty. On days one through three, he establishes form. He takes what appears to be chaos and he structures it. He separates light and darkness. He separates sky and sea. He separates land and sea. And now we have forms. He has hedged in, hemmed in the water and given it order. The seas are allowed to roar and roam, but they have boundaries now. God has established and fixed orders, uh, order. And then on day four, five, and six, he fills those forms. So on day one, he, he separates light and darkness, but on day four, he fills the light and darkness. He sets the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. And then I love that little throwaway line. He made the stars too. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Oh, really? The, the, the star at the center of Orion's belt is 1,400 light years away. 
<laughs> you're looking, go up and go tonight and just look at the belt of Orion and see the center star and think the light that's hitting your eyes is light from 1,400 years ago, traveling at 186,000 miles per second, and it just hit your eyes. And that's a pretty close star in our galaxy. And there are millions of galaxies. And he says, yeah, he made them too. <laughs> he, just, he just threw the stars out there. But the big deal here is the sun and the moon. And he set the sun to govern the day. He sets the sun to cast out darkness. And yet in the cycle of our day, darkness comes around again comes around every night. We have to reckon with the fact that we are in an age where there is still night. There is darkness. There is suffering. There is death. You know, the saints in the Middle Ages wrote about the dark night of the soul. Darkness is a metaphor. It's powerful. And we've all been there. We've all had the long, hard nights of grief and suffering. And so we get the cycle every day. The sun comes up, casts out the darkness, and then the darkness comes, and we long for the day, and the day comes and casts out darkness. And every day the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Every day the sky is preaching a sermon to you. Every day they're talking about it. And what I love is that he gives us the moon to govern the night. What's the purpose of the moon? Now, again, we could have the scientists come in here. I'm sure they tell us. I think it has something to do with tides. I don't know what it does. I'm, not, I'm no scientist. But let me tell you what the meaning of the moon is. The meaning of the moon is that in the darkness, the sun is still there. What the moon tells you when you go out at night is that in the midst of the darkness, when you look up, you can't see the sun anymore. The sun is gone. It's on the other side of the globe. And in our darkness, indeed, you might wonder if the sun's ever coming back. Will he ever come back again? But you look at the moon. And the moon, which has no light in and of itself, it's just a rock, reflects the light of the sun, which you can't see. And says to us, in the deepest parts of our darkness, in the middle of the night, we look up and we say, ah, I don't see the sun, but I know it's still there and I know it's coming back. I look forward to the time when the sun comes out and casts out darkness. Now, no scientist is going to tell you that, but this is the inside scoop. I'm giving you the truth about what the moon really means. They can tell you what the moon does, but they can't tell you what it means. But the scriptures tell us what the moon means. God does not abandon us to the darkness. As dark as it gets, the moon tells us that the sun is still there and it's coming back. He's coming back. So our Lord, if we understood Moses, we'd understand Christ. Christ is the light of the world. And he's the one who brings form out of chaos. Indeed, days one through three, God does not let the murky waters that cover the earth remain. No, he pulls out from them structure and order, and he, he structures it, reigns it in. Evil, chaos, and sin are not allowed to run wild. Oh, indeed, they exist for a time. For a time, the earth is formless. But through the word of God, 
through the word of God, order is brought forth. And the beasts of the sea, if you will, the sea itself which roars, the nations which raise their fists against the Lord and his anointed are hemmed in and can go no further than the Lord by his decree allows. So he's a God of light, he's a God of form and order, and he's a God of fullness. He's a God of fullness. I tell my students, I say, you realize God didn't have to create flavor? He didn't have to create color. He didn't have to create trees. He could have just created tree. <laughs> you know, there's just tree, animal, fish, right? Flower. He didn't even have to create flower, right? But what we learn in the story of creation is that our God is a God of abundant fullness. Jesus himself tells us this when he says, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it pretty okay. <laughs> That it might not be that bad. No, he says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Our God, our Christ, our Savior is a God who will not let darkness remain. He will not let chaos remain. And he will not allow emptiness to remain. He will fill the earth that he structures and that he creates. And God creates it empty so that you can watch him fill it. So you can say, oh, you don't like it that way. You fill your house with good things. And what's really fascinating, and we don't have time, it's another sermon. We could talk about a little more Sunday school. We did last time we thought about these things. Is that when God makes man in his image, a little moon, if you will, to reflect the light of his infinite glory. You don't see God, but you see me. I see you. And I see God's glory reflected in you. Now, our sin has messed it up pretty bad. But it's, there's still something there by God's grace. And certainly in Christ, we reflect the, the glory. When God made man in his image, it's interesting, he gave him the task of doing what he did. So God forms the chaos. He subdues the chaos. And then he turns to man when he makes him. He says, now you, subdue the earth. Rule over it. I've ruled over it. Do you see how I did that? Do you see how I brought order to the chaos and I subdued it and I, I exercised authority over it? I didn't allow the chaos to remain. I structured it. Now you go structure. Now you go order. You do what I did. And did you see how I filled it? I filled the sea with fish and I filled the sky with birds and I, I filled the, the land with plants and animals. Now you be fruitful. You multiply. You fill the earth. It's interesting that he made Adam and Eve. He didn't make us. He made Adam and Eve and said, you make Cain. You make Abel. You make Seth. You all fill the earth. Do you see what I did? Reflect it. Go do it. Go be it as my image bearers. And God allows us to participate with, in, with him in the ruling and in the subduing and in the filling. And as we read in, our, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the light shining even. Isn't it blasphemy to say you are the light of the world? Like if that wasn't in the Bible and I just came out and said it, you should pick up stones to stone me. How dare you call any human being the light of the world? But it takes the light of the world himself to say it. Jesus says, you are, the, I, you are the light of the world. You're with me in this. 
right? We are co-workers with the Lord Jesus Christ in his work of light shining, in his work of forming and structuring the chaos. It's what you do in your jobs every day, right? In your families, in your personal life, as we fight back the chaos, as we bring order and subdue it, in whatever field we're doing it, we're being image bearers of God in doing that. And then we fill, we fill the earth with good things, right? As we are filled by the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are to understand Moses, if we're to understand Genesis, then we must read it in such a way that helps us to understand Jesus better. Not in some corny, cheesy way, trying to figure out how he's in every single verse. That's not the point. But that every single story, every single truth that is being proclaimed here is never just a truth on its own, disconnected from the story of Jesus. But what we find out is that in the Bible, from the very beginning, from the very first verses, every story is a story that is meant to prepare us, to begin to set the patterns of our thinking and of our doing in such a manner that we know Christ when he arrives. When he comes, when he came in and John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, everyone should have said, oh, so it's you. Oh, so it's you we've been waiting for. Instead, they killed him. They killed him because they have some radically different vision about what the stories were leading to. And so that when he comes, they don't recognize him. And frankly, they don't want him because he interferes with everything they've been building over the past 2,000 years, everything they've been thinking over the past 2,000 years. And that's the danger. That's the danger when we don't come to the scriptures and see Christ there. Then we end up wanting to kill God. We're going to see that next week in Genesis chapter 3 from the very beginning, how it's in our... It's so, it's so basic to our nature. I didn't want to say essential because it's not essential to man, but it's really, really fundamental to not see Christ in the Word and to grasp after something else. So we'll, we'll deal with that next week when we think about Adam and his sin. So may God grant us the gift of eyes to see and ears to hear Christ, the Word, in the Word, as we reflect on it, even in the beginning, Christ is the giver of light, the giver of form, and the giver of fullness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word, the word of Scripture, but the word incarnate. And forgive us for ways in which we have read the Scriptures, but just never acknowledged Jesus. Father, we want to understand. We want to know him better, for we cannot know you apart from him. And so draw our hearts and minds to him. We thank you that you are a God who, while you allow darkness according to your purposes, and we don't pretend to judge what you do, you are the sovereign God. And in your providence, in your good purposes, you allow darkness. But oh, how we thank you that you are the God who casts out darkness, who sends the light, who promises us the day when there will be no more night, and who in the meantime gives us the gift of the moon to remind us that the sun is coming back. And we thank you that you don't allow chaos to abide, but that, Father, you structure it and order it, and you're doing that even in our lives, for you've taken us out of the chaos and rebellion of our sin, and you have begun to structure us by your Spirit and make us sons and daughters of God. And we thank you that you are a God who does not abide with emptiness, but who fills, who, who floods his creation with good things, and so we enjoy them and we thank you for them. So fill us again by your Spirit, we pray. And be with us throughout this week that we might honor and serve you in these things. For we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.